Hi, I'm Adrian, and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading for today. It's Judges 17. It's on your little handout thingy. Um, now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 11 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol, the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephrod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah said to him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Thanks, Adrian. Well, have you ever looked around the world and wondered why there are so many different religions? Why, in spite of the best efforts of atheists, the vast majority of the world is incurably religious? And you look around the world and the bulk of the population is covered by the big five religions, by Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, uh, Christianity, Islam. But that's really just scratching the surface in terms of the number of religions that are out there. Sikhism, Baha'i, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, not to mention all the sort of native tribal religions that exist all over the world. And when you think about it, they're just the ones that exist today. If you start to think about the ones that existed in the past, the worship of Baal and Moloch and Asherah and Zeus and Diana and Apollo, well, they just multiply and multiply. There must be more religions, more gods than there are people on the face of the earth, just about. You think of our own months. We've got four months at least, uh, January, March, uh, June, May, that are all named after gods. All our days of the week are named after gods. Sunday, Moon Day, Tuesday, Woden's Day, Thor's Day, Friar's Day and Saturn's Day. We seem to be incurably religious. Uh, but if you're Christian, that shouldn't surprise you because uh, we discover that people are innately religious because we instinctively know that there's a creator. We instinctively know that there is real right and wrong we instinctively know that our lives are not meaningless. After all, like it says in Romans chapter 1, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. But then when you look around the global religious scene, it's totally chaotic. There are all these different gods, more than you could name or imagine even. And they're kind of incompatible and it's all sort of a bit bizarre. In fact, it seems like there are as many gods as there are cultures. But that shouldn't surprise us either. Uh, As Romans goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Religion comes from this general awareness that there is a God. We kind of instinctively sense it. It's just natural. But if you don't know the true and living God, well, then you just project your own culture or your own ideas onto that vague sense that there's something out there. And so religion ends up not honouring the God who made us, but distorting him and worse, attempting to manipulate him for our own ends. But it doesn't work. And that's one of the key messages of Judges 17 and 18 that we're going to look at today. But before we do that, uh, let's have a quick look at God's summary of where things are at uh, in chapter 2 of Judges. So in chapter 2, God said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They'll become traps to you. And their gods will become snares to you. And that's exactly what we see throughout the book of Judges. We've uh, been talking about this cycle that we see throughout Judges, where Israel turns from the Lord, the Lord hands them over to their enemies. Israel is in distress, and so the Lord raises up a judge to save them. Uh, Israel has peace, and then the whole cycle starts again. They turn from the Lord, the Lord hands them over to their enemies. And each time, as we go through each of the major judges, we go to a different enemy. And if you look at the different enemies that we come across for each of the major judges, you realise that actually it's designed in a way that they bracket Israel. So first up we get Othniel with the Aramites, and then we get Ehud with the Moabites, north and south. And then we get Deborah with Jabin, the king of Hazor, and then we go south again with Gideon and the Midianites. And then we get Jephthah and the Ammonites out to the east. And then we get Samson with the Philistines to the east, uh, to the west. But now as we get to the end of the book of Judges, after we've bracketed the whole of Israel, we actually start to go down the spiral. Because the book of Judges is not just circular, it's actually a spiral. We go around that cycle and each time we sort of complete the cycle, we move on to another enemy and it drops down and things get worse and worse and worse until we spiral into the heart of the problem. Because it turns out, as we go through Judges, 
that the surrounding nations are actually just peripheral enemies. They're just peripheral problems. That in reality, the heart of Israel's problem is Israel's heart. Israel are unfaithful. They're riddled with sin. And so they suppress the truth about God and they end up in the same religious chaos and idolatry as the nations around them. As chapter 17 opens, we find ourselves in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, And Ephraim is one of the great tribes of Israel. Lots of good things have happened in Ephraim over the course of Judges. Uh, Joshua was buried there. Ehud rallied Israel from there to defeat the Moabites. Deborah held court in Ephraim. Gideon called the men of Ephraim to fight the Midianites. And so you think, well, Ephraim, that's not bad, hey? Uh, What's going to happen from here? But it turns out to be pretty tawdry. It's not an epic adventure. It's just a pathetic little household drama. Because a man named Micah comes to his mother and confesses to her that the uh, the 1,100 shekels of silver that someone has stolen were actually stolen by him. He's nicked about two and a half kilos of his mum's silver, which is not a great start to the story. But then you think, well, you know, on the upside, he's confessed, uh, he's returning it. Mum's happy, she's stoked. In fact, she cursed the thief who'd taken her silver, but now she blesses her son. Things are actually looking up. This looks like a good news story. Son repents, mum gets money back, family reconciled, curses turn into blessings. It's like the opposite of a country and western song. What's not to like? But then from this promising start, we suddenly end up through the looking glass where we realise that everything is not as it seems. So have a look at verse 3 with me there. In chapter 17, verse 3. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. Sounds good, right? For my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I'll give it back to you. Now, on the one hand, that's perfectly natural, isn't it? A woman gets large sum of money returned to her. She's thankful to God. And so she makes an idol. She wants to do something to thank him. But at the same time, it's totally bizarre because although Micah's mum knows that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God, she actually doesn't seem to know the most basic things about him. She doesn't even seem to know the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You really don't have to get far into the knowledge of Israel's God to come across that one. And her son, Micah, his name means, who is like Yahweh? And he makes a likeness of Yahweh out of silver. The whole story has a kind of surreal feeling to it. It doesn't... It's It's weird. And what makes it so weird, I think, is that Micah and his mum seem to have no idea that they're doing anything wrong. They blatantly break the second commandment. 
they just don't get that any representation of God actually misrepresents him. So I guess you make an idol out of silver because you think, well, God is beautiful and he's precious and he's valuable. But actually the idol misrepresents him. Because God is not a small, inanimate object, unthinking and unfeeling, with no capacity for relationship. All idols necessarily misrepresent God. And that's why he finds them so disgusting. Besides that, he's already made an image of himself. Billions of them, because God has made you and me in his image. That's why you're precious and beautiful and animate and thinking and feeling and capable of relationship. Because you're made in the image of God. That's why it's wrong to abuse people, to kill them, to treat them with contempt. It's not about being highly evolved animals. We may be that, but that doesn't make us sacred. What makes us sacred is that we're made in the image of God. When you meet another person, you get a little bit of a glimpse of what God is like. You do not get that from an idol. But in verse 6, the author gives us a hint of what's going on. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. See, Micah and his mum are just operating under the same ethic as our society. If it doesn't hurt anyone, then who's to tell me I'm not to do it? It's fine. I can do what seems right to me. No one can tell me that I'm wrong. It's sort of glorious individualism. Total freedom. And yet, somehow, in this glorious individualism, they become like everyone else. And in this wonderful freedom, they end up enslaved to a lump of metal. Why do people worship idols? Why do they invent their own religions? Why would you do something that is so obviously foolish? I think the next episode sheds some light on it. Because in verses 7 to 13, a Levite comes to Micah's house. Now, the Levites are the tribe of Israel who are set apart to be priests. And so Micah goes, you beauty, I've got a real live priest here. Let me offer him a job. So he employs this Levite as his priest. And all over again, it seems perfectly natural. And yet at the same time, totally bizarre. It's perfectly natural in the sense that Levites are special. They're holy people. Who wouldn't want a holy man to look after their idol? Special man, special blessings. And like Micah says in verse 13, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. But at the same time, it is totally bizarre, isn't it? Because it ignores what God has actually said. So the Levites were assigned cities to live in. And Bethlehem, where this Levite is from, was not one of them. They were supposed to be supported by their farms and by the tithes of their fellow Israelites. So why does this Levite need a job? And not all the Levites were actually supposed to be priests anyway. Only the family of Aaron. And which family is this guy from? We don't know. 
No one seems to care. And who gave Micah the right to ordain this Levite as a priest anyway? And what happened to Micah's son, who was the priest originally? Did he get the sack? He just kind of disappears from the scene. And his dad doesn't seem to be overly phased by that at all. In fact, we're told in verse 11 that the new guy became like a son to Micah. But none of it seems to matter to Micah. Because now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. And I think that actually gets us to the heart of idolatry. Because on the surface, idolatry looks like it's about honouring God. After all, I spend all this money on this statue and offerings to it. I employ a priest. But actually, it's all about trying to manipulate God. If I do this thing for God, if I make a statue, if I make it expensive, if I employ a priest, if I do all the right rituals, then God has to bless me. By employing this Levite, Micah is trying to add a sort of veneer of orthodoxy to what he's doing. But it's not orthodox at all. Underneath, nothing's changed. It's just the same old idolatry, the same old attempt to manipulate God look around the world, you see examples of pretty straightforward idolatry everywhere. Hinduism, Buddhism, various tribal religions. But if you scratch the veneer of orthodoxy, you see it in plenty of churches as well, don't you? Churches that might have fancy robes and beautiful statues, gold crosses, but it's little better than pagan idolatry. It's got all the gear, but no idea. Or churches that might shudder at the thought of idolatry, but they're still trying to manipulate God. If you come to church every Sunday, if you put your offering in the plate, especially if you make it a big offering, God will bless you. Your business will grow. You'll become healthy, wealthy and prosperous. Jesus enriches. This I know, for Joel Osteen told me so. But if that's what you think, then you're no better than Micah. You don't actually care about God. You don't love him. You don't love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You just love what he can give you. And that is a disgraceful way to treat people, let alone the true and living God. And it doesn't work, as Micah is about to find out. Now, as we enter chapter 18, uh, we're reminded of something that we read back in chapter 1, that the tribe of Dan has failed to secure the land that they were allotted in the south of Israel. The Amorites in that region were too strong. Uh, Dan couldn't push them out. And so now they send out five men to spy out a place where it might be a little bit easier for them to settle. They head north uh, and they end up at Micah's house in Ephraim, where the five men spend the night. And on discovering the Levite that we met earlier in chapter 17, they ask him to inquire of God whether or not their journey will be successful. And the Levite answers, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. The men spy out Laish and they discover that it's the promised land. A spacious land, a land that lacks nothing whatsoever. And what's more, the people in the land are uh, 
peaceful and a long way from their only allies, the Sidonians. And so the spies hurry home and they urge their fellow Danites to attack. So Dan sends out 600 men. And things seem to be looking up. The Lord approves of his people. He's finally going to deliver the land that he promised. But then these 600 men, armed to the teeth, retrace this, uh, the spies' steps and they arrive at Micah's house. And the spies who are with them say in verse 14, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. Well, what are they going to do? Are they going to go in there and destroy this idolatry? Wipe it out? Uh, return to the worship of the Lord? No, not at all. Verse 17, they steal Micah's idol, his ephod and his household gods. And when the priest says, what are you doing? They answer, be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? And verse 20, the priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods and the idol and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. And again, at one level, it's perfectly natural, isn't it? We need to conquer Laish. We're going to war. And this priest and his God, they said nice things about us. So we'll take them along with us so they can bless us. Seems like an eminently sensible thing to do. Perfectly natural. Yet at the same time, it is totally bizarre. We're told in chapters 1 and 2 of Judges that the Danites failed to conquer the Amorites because they disobeyed the Lord. And yet the spies asked the Levite if, uh, to inquire of the Lord if he'll bless them in this attempt to take another land that they weren't supposed to take at all. Why not just obey the Lord and conquer the land that he's given you in the first place? They offer the Levite a job. It's a big promotion because the Levites said that the Lord would bless them. But did you notice back in verse 6 of chapter 18 that the Levite doesn't actually inquire of the Lord at all? They ask him to, but he just immediately responds. He just tells them what they want to hear. And at the first opportunity, he betrays his employer. He abandons his role as father and priest for Micah to become father and priest for the Danites because he's just in it for the money. He's just in it for his own prosperity. Why would you want to recruit a priest like that? But the priest is actually just like the God he serves. He's completely unreliable. See, Micah thinks that this idol that he's made will protect him, will look after him and bless him. But his God fails at the first opportunity. This God lets Micah be robbed of everything he has. Idol, ephod, household gods and priest. And yet the Danites think that this is a good deal. Let's grab this God because he'll be able to bless us. He'll rescue us as we go into battle. When Micah finds out what's happened, he grabs his neighbours and he chases the Danites. But they are far more powerful than him and they just mock him. What's the matter with you? Verse 24, he says, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? 
And they say, don't argue with us. Or some of the men may get angry and attack you. And you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way. And Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. He's a broken man. A broken man who made his own religion. And I can't save him. He prided himself on having a Levite for his priest. But his gods and his priests have failed him at the first opportunity. And the confidence he placed in them is exposed as utter foolishness. His whole life has revolved around these things. Building up his little collection of household gods like Lego toys or something. Making this silver idol. Recruiting this Levite. It's all been about this. Without them, he is nothing. What have I left, he says. He's been completely undone, ruined by his false priest and his false gods. And all he can do is turn and go back to his empty house and his empty life. It's a cruel ending, isn't it? But that is the cruelty of idolatry. Idolatry is not just, well, an interesting religious option, like, well, we were used to sort of eating boiled mutton and boiled carrots and boiled potatoes, and now we've got all this wonderful multicultural influence and we get curries and spaghetti and good things like that. That's great. That's a good kind of multiculturalism. But idolatry is not. Idolatry is cruel. As we worship something that is not God, we actually end up becoming less like God ourselves. See it in these beautiful images that people make, that they pour all their money into as they walk past the actual images of God starving on the streets, hoping that somehow this lump of metal will save them from the same fate. But it can't, and it won't. Idols will take everything that you have, but they cannot save. They're just wood or stone or metal. They're useless, and God hates them. He hates the suppression of the truth about him. He hates the way people reject what he said about himself. And he hates the way they pay lip service to him so that they love him, but only care about what he can give them. And he hates the way idols lead us to treat others. But in the end, the story of Micah is not actually a story about pagans. It's actually about Israel, isn't it? It's about the people of God, who have even less excuse than the pagans. Because they not only had the natural revelation of God in creation, they had his very words in the law that he'd given them. They knew the name of the Lord. They claimed to worship him. But in their sin, they'd become just like the culture around them. Only interested in their own gain. Only interested in their own profit. Just doing what seemed right in their own eyes. Just doing what seemed natural and good. Wouldn't it be terrible for God's church to become like that? Except... So often, it already is, isn't it? 
is there any hope for God's people when you look around and you see the churches where millions of dollars is spent on decorating their audiovisual system and it's all just there because we think it all please God and he'll make us rich or all the elaborate decorations which become the focus of worship instead of actually the God who made us. Is there any remedy for the idolatry of the world? Is there any remedy for the idolatry of God's people? Well, praise God, there is. Because God, in his kindness, hasn't left us his sin-damaged images to wallow in our sin, crying out to idols that cannot save us. He sent his son, the true image, the true image of God, not simply made in the image of God, but the very image of God himself. He sent him into our world to rescue us from our natural foolishness, our natural sin. He sent the true image of God, precious and beautiful, animate, thinking, feeling, capable of relationship and free from sin to reveal the true and living God in all his wonderful character and power. If you want to see God, don't look to a lump of clay or stone or metal. Don't look to a figment of your imagination. Look to Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, you see God. You see what God is really like. Not a God who can be manipulated, not a God you can use to try and make yourself rich, not a God you can manipulate into making you important, but a God who is lovely just for who he is, a God who loves you and who won't abandon you in your hour of need, a God who isn't a lump of metal, but a God who really is able to save He's able to save us from our worst enemies, from sin and death and Satan. When you look at Jesus, you see the true image of God. And as we fix our eyes on him and follow him and trust in him, we actually become more like him ourselves. We become more truly the image bearers of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please rescue us from the foolishness of idolatry and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the true image of you. And we ask it for his sake. Amen.